Tēnā koutou As part of the university's Distinguished Alumni podcast series, it's my pleasure to talk today with Chris Parkin. Welcome to our listeners. I'm Jennifer Windsor, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the Faculties of Humanities and Social Sciences and Education. Chris Parkin, entrepreneur, philanthropist, collector, arts patron, former hotelier, and three-term Wellington City Councillor. He graduated from our university with bachelor's degrees in science and commerce and administration, and a master of science in geochemistry. Wellington has benefited greatly from his generosity, and he's played a significant role in the development of the city as the cultural capital in New Zealand. He's a generous patron and the driving force behind many projects that benefit the wider community. In 2011, he was awarded a Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to the arts and business, and he received the Philanthropy Showcase Award at the 2020 Wellingtonian of the Year Awards. We're very pleased he is also one of our distinguished alumni. Tanakwe Chris, no mai. Welcome and thank you very much for taking the time today for a conversation. Many congratulations on receiving the Distinguished Alumni Award. I think it's really richly deserved for the broad range of contributions that you've made to Wellington, New Zealand and our university. Now, I think you're one of Wellington's most notable people and you seem to have a Renaissance-type breadth in your interests and your inquiry and your willingness to explore new ideas. And I also think you help revive the human spirit in what you've done in your work. How do you feel about that? Well, they're very kind words. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I must admit, if people think that of me, then I'm, I'm very flattered. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I was very lucky uh, in terms of the genes I inherited and in that I've always been very much a lateral thinker and very much a problem solver. And so most of the obstacles I've come up against in my life, I've seen ways around them. And I think that makes for a personality that isn't frightened to challenge. And when you've got a personality that's not frightened to challenge, I think you find that in life you can perhaps go a little bit extra distance Mm. to those who don't have that character. So it sounds like you are someone who is interested in uh, getting to a yes rather than getting to a no. Absolutely. He's very much a glass half full person. All right, can I start back in the day? Sure. So let's go back to when you were at the university. Your degrees cover a range of content. Mm -hmm. And what did you have in mind when you were studying? Well, before I came to the university, absolutely nothing. I I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, all I knew was that I seemed to have a little bit of a bent for the sciences And so I followed that up by enrolling in maths, physics and chemistry, um, thinking, well, at least one of these surely (laughs) will provide something. So anyway, as time went on, um, I became less interested in mathematics. I was always interested in physics and chemistry, but also drifted into geology, which I found particularly interesting as it sort of dealt with, I guess, more of the natural environment that you could see and be involved with so that's sort of the um, the starting point 
Then, like many students, I took a year off, and I spent that year in Sydney working. And that gave me, I think, a real insight into the world of commerce. And I realised that business was far more interesting to me, being a scientist or an in-the-field geologist or something like that. When I came back to New Zealand, I enrolled in uh, doing a BCA in those days, a commerce degree, as and continued on with my sciences. It was a very new thing in those days, and... and so it, fortunately the calendar actually worked and I was able to study economics and statistics and things like that at the same time as study chemistry and geology. You are ahead of your time in that way. I've always been ahead of my time. <laughs> we, we talk a lot about inter and multidisciplinarity yeah. and how to bring different parts of the university together for students and staff. But it sounds like you were doing that way back in your undergraduate yeah. days. I realised that year away that I had, I realised that a scientific education gives you a wonderful problem-solving ability because that's effectively what it's all about. It's all about questioning, analysis, drawing conclusions based on fact. And that's enormously helpful in any commercial environment. So I realised that having a science background as well as having a commercial background would actually, I thought, give me an advantage in the commercial world and it certainly proved to be the case mm. and I think over the years I found it a lot easier to solve problems commercial problems as a result of having that sort of solid scientific education behind me. That's right <clears throat> as well as having both some time away from the university mm. and time at the university. Yeah I must admit I've, I've become a big fan of, of gap years and mid-course breaks as being a fantastic opportunity for people to develop their thinking and their character and I came back a way more mature person. I'm in terms, I mean, just little things like in terms of ability to study, because I'd actually spent a year working hard, like getting paid by the number of hours you put in, all of a sudden coming back to university and putting in five or six hours a day was chicken feed. Whereas prior to that, any excuse not to do something and I'd be into it. So uh, the discipline that, that break can give you, I think is enormously helpful for people having difficulty adapting to themselves to study. At the end of the day, they're quite right. It's, you know, 90% hard work. You know, the rest is perhaps a little bit of intelligence or natural gift. But if you don't do the hard work, um, you're just not going to get there. And the hard work helps you create opportunities? Absolutely, yes, it does. And you start believing in yourself. You start, you gain confidence by doing that, that you can actually handle yourself in a world that's very different from the academic environment, which up until that point you've not had anything to do with. And so you come back to the university in a totally different frame of mind. And I think, it, certainly for me anyway, it helped me enormously. I don't know that I was a great deal better student. Certainly, There was certainly more application anyway. So let me just shift a little. And I understand you underwent a sea change in your personal politics while at the university possibly in the opposite direction to many students. Yeah, uh, it was sort Can of, you tell us about that? Yeah, it was probably something that happened later in life, actually, than at university. But And I guess you know, I've 
I mean, we haven't time, but I could quote you many examples of people who've done exactly the same thing. Um, you come to university post-adolescence, being a very liberal-minded person. You really, truly believe that the world's problems are solvable and that there are systems of government that can provide this input that will actually make this, uh, these solutions possible. And then the more you have to do with other humans in a normal working environment, the more you realise that a lot of the very high-minded liberal ideas don't take anywhere near enough account of human nature. And so I guess it took a while. It was certainly um, a few years post-university, but I changed from, I think I was a Trotskyite at one stage and, uh, you know, used to try and read people like Herbert Marcuse and uh, not that I ever understood it, but, you know, tried desperately to absorb this idea that there was a political system that would actually, you know, deliver more and better for humanity. And as I, later in life, um, post-university, I was very, very committed to the Labour Party at even a later stage, Fran Wilde used to used to have her hoardings on my garage up in Waitstown and so on. So, and I used to go to sort of uh, Labour Party meetings. And then, I guess um, as time went on, uh, I sort of converted more, uh, particularly with Roger Douglas. Actually, it was really mm. more that Douglas Labour government, the Longy government, um, which really changed my mind in terms of the type of economics that actually. I thought would actually really deliver. Do you want humanity. to say a little bit more about that? You recall, of course, that the you know the Longy government was a Labour government, and uh, at that stage I was very much a Labour Party supporter. And but everything they did, I kind of agreed with the logic of it. You know that you couldn't subsidise people into profitability, and you didn't uh, make poor people rich by tearing down rich people, and that uh, the market-based system actually delivered not perfectly, but better than any other system that I could conceive of. And so I guess I went along with that, and over time, uh, found myself moving more and more to what we conventionally call the right, <laughs> as opposed to the left. And whereas where I am today would be very much centre-right and very much a believer in the market. Um, That doesn't mean you don't necessarily believe in social intervention, but it's not the be-all and end-all and shouldn't be considered that way. Moving on from university a little, right? Mm -hmm. You went to the US then in your early career, a business analyst? I'd been working in the finance sector for what was then New Zealand's Development Bank, Development Finance Corporation. And like many New Zealanders, I was pretty keen to have some OE, being a lateral thinker. I came up with this idea of DFC opening an office in California, led by me, of course. Of course. The idea being that at the time we had really quite extensive export incentives and uh, and particularly for manufacturing. And I thought I could persuade American manufacturers to move their manufacturing facilities to New Zealand, thereby providing employment opportunities and producing exports and so on and so forth. Anyway, I must have been quite convincing because I managed to convince the then nabobs at DFC (laughs) to open an office uh, in San Francisco. And so I went up there and lived there for four years 
doing that sort of work. And we did have some moderate success and uh, then, then eventually came back to New Zealand. So, so that was the, uh, the interesting thing about that. And I think the one thing that um, I really got out of going to the United States was this glass half full thing. Um, one thing that I really admire about Americans is if you have an idea, generally speaking, their contribution to that, well, how can we make it better? as opposed to trying to pull you down. And so it's a very a, a society that seems very much focused on positive reinforcement um, rather than tall poppy type syndrome, which was very prevalent in New Zealand when I left. It's not so much now. but So, you know, that added, I guess, to the positivity I felt to doing things and, um, and creating things and coming up with ideas and seeing them through to fruition. Um, what was the era? What's the decade you were in? Uh, it was the US? Um, it was when uh, Ronald Reagan was first elected. Not long after I arrived there, we sat down to front of the TV, you know, with all the food and beer and stuff like that uh, to watch the election. And uh, this was sort of we, because it starts very early in the United States and finishes quite late. We were in California, so we thought we'd knock off early at four o'clock. And by that stage, the election had already been decided by about three hours. And uh, Jimmy Carter was out and and, uh, Ronald Reagan was in. So, yeah, it was that era. My memory is that it was a time of change, optimism, really putting different kinds of economic prosperity at the forefront. Very much so. Um, Reagan was very much introduced the idea of a more market-led economy. Right. supply side economics and that resonated with me that really made sense to me you know the idea and, and in fact it, it proved to be the case mm. and so why did you come back to Wellington perhaps it was because I just lacked imagination <laughs> no I had a job to come back to and at that stage my wife was seven months pregnant and we, we had the opportunity to stay in the United States but we really wanted to raise any children we had in New Zealand and uh, I had a job to come back to with DFC, so Wellington seemed the logical place. And I, we arrived here and we liked it, and I've never ever had a good reason to leave. So I became a confirmed Wellingtonian, even though I actually grew up in Otak, 50 miles north, but uh, Wellington was our nearest big city, and, and it uh, seems to have been the case ever since then. It's kept you here, right? Yeah. And my understanding is that... Uh, Part of what you've done while being based in Wellington, and maybe before, is to start building an art collection. Mm, mm. Is that right? That um, that really came quite a lot later. Um, The the first thing I worked out, funny enough, when I was still at university, was that there's got to be a better way of making money than just working for somebody else. So... While I was at university, after I'd come back from Australia, uh, I started buying houses and renovating them and then reselling them. Don't, and I don't want that to sound too grand. It's not something I did a lot of, um, but I did enough of to actually start making a little bit of money in property. And so that sort of led me pretty much for the rest of my life into the property sector as a career. And the... Art collection sort of really came out of that. It's sort of, I had a background in art appreciation 
in the sense that both of my parents were interested and when I was young I was there were always books on art in the house and we had framed prints on the wall and that was you know in 1960s otaki that was pretty unusual and so I had this sort of art thing but I think the collecting of art sort of came out of prosperity and it was actually putting together a an appreciation of art with the ability to actually afford good art mm. And also at that stage I had the hotel and enormous amount of wall space. And so I could actually combine the business with what eventually became a developing passion. So, so it sort of started out interior decoration and ended up um, more of an art collection, if you like. I do. And so I'm going to flip things a little bit. I yeah. want to ask more about your passion around art. But let's go back to the property. Right. right? Okay. You know, this is clearly, you've been pivotal in Wellington and New Zealand around some of the your property activities. And one of them is moving the Michael Fowler Hotel, right? Now the Museum yeah. Hotel to mm. make way for to Papa, uh, and then of course there are other properties as well. So let's back up to property. So can you tell us a little bit about the Museum Hotel? Sure. I I once said to somebody, it was the most fun I've ever had working, and I think that's right. It was one of those sort of projects which came out of left field as a possibility, and the more I got into it and the closer we got uh, to success with it, the more I thought this is absolutely amazing. There's got to be some divine intervention in here somewhere. It was so unlikely if you looked at it from the point of view of where we started. And so what we had uh, was an interest in the property uh, through leasing it from the government. The government had actually closed it down fairly spectacularly um, about a year before we got involved. Anyway, I ended up uh, convincing the Ministry of Internal Affairs that I could um, run the hotel for them using my money and share 50% of the profits with them if they let me do it. And so they weren't making anything out of it. They was costing them a lot of money to have security guards sitting there 24-7. So we ended up running it, and we did very well for about three years. And over that time, the foundation board of Te Papa were working towards actually starting construction of Te Papa. And so we came to a point where, having done quite well, both of us, uh, they said, look, we are going to demolish the building now, so you need to be out of it by March 31 or whatever the date was. And we understood that. I mean, we were perfectly happy with that because that was what was always intended. Um, and I was commiserating with my next-door neighbour um, over lunch and mentioned that it was a shame this was all coming to an end. And he said, um, he was in the construction business, he said, you know, it's funny, he said, I read an article some years ago about how they moved a big building in Chicago. Um, have you ever thought of moving it? And uh, I hadn't, as you know, most people wouldn't have. It was quite a large building. Anyway, so I did a bit of research and I thought, oh, this might be possible. And so um, I started getting into it and we 
managed to convince the Tapapa board that um, you know they would certainly assist where they could uh, in terms of you know conserving the building rather than demolishing it. And gradually we put all the elements together that made the project possible. And so over a period of about three months, we managed to get... Well, I mean, we had a few problems. I mean, we, we didn't have anywhere to put the building for a start. You do need somewhere to put a building You make like this that. sound like a, <laughs> a handbag. Yeah, yeah. And so and, and, and as it turned out, um, we, we found a site, the present site, which was sort of down the road and across the road, and... Fortunately, all of the buildings that were at that stage in the way of us going there were all going to be demolished. So we, we did so all of a sudden we had a clear path to another site. The only problem we had, of course, was moving the building. And so then we started and well, we didn't have any money either. That was the other thing we lacked at that stage. So but we managed to get over all those things and we got a very good construction company to help us and they were sort of pretty, it was just a whole lot of people. It was one of those things where, so I say, you know, I reckon there was a bit of divine intervention. There were so many things that needed to happen that, you know, that, that eventually did happen that make it made it possible. I mean, the, probably the most remarkable one was about a week before everything was due to happen, um, the owner of the construction company decided this project was too risky and he just said, no, nah, we're not doing it. The actual this, this physical was the, the actual movement. move, yes. We were, we were all ready to sort of start, not the move, but start the process of the move. And uh, he said no. So, And their, their reasoning was that if they got sort of halfway there and things, they only got paid if they delivered the building to the other site. And he was worried that they'd get halfway there and the whole thing would collapse and that it would be that, you see. Anyway, we worked out um, how much they would be exposed financially at that point. And um, I convinced them that we should talk to Lloyds of London about ensuring the move. Uh, anyway, so we did. And uh, we managed to find an underwriter in Lloyd's who was prepared to underwrite the move. So basically they covered the potential loss over just the two-week window when the, when the property was actually transferring from one side of the road to the other. And we just added the cost of that into the contract price. And so it was things like that that, you know, made it a pretty special sort of project. And uh, a superb example of the lateral thinking. Exactly. Right. That was going to be my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but it is iconic, and it sounds like a really special project, right? Yeah, it was not just the outcome. I was even. But oh, believe it or not, they made me Wellingtonian of the year. I then. know. <laughs> no, that, was, <laughs> that was in the days when Wellingtonian of the year was a very new thing. There probably wasn't much competition. But, but the process of itself, yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is that yeah. despite the the scale of it and the risk involved and the multiple mm. people in coordination, mm. Mm. you talk about it as if it were also fun. Mm. Oh, it was. It was, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it really was. And it, yeah, it was one of those sort of challenges where you could really get your teeth into. And because we managed to park most of the risk with other people. I didn't actually have to lie awake too much thinking my house was going to be taken away from me. So, that always helps. Yes, yeah, so that always helped. Anyway, that was the start of it, and so I became a hotelier for 25 years. 
until we, in 2015, we sold out to an Australian company. That's mm. right, that's right. So it was fun. I want to go back to art and I want to talk a little bit about uh, politics in sure. terms of Wellington City Council. Yep. But before we do, other other property things of which you have really enjoyed or that have really stayed with you? There, there aren't too many. Other, there, most of the other property uh, involvements I've had have really been, um, you know, sort of fairly vanilla type investments. Um, although back in the day, you know, well prior to um, the hotel, uh, I used to buy apartment buildings and unit title them and resell them. Um, and that was fun, and that was that was in the days when most apartment buildings were owned by single owners, and uh, it was sort of the early days of unit titling as a process, mm. and mm. Uh, so we were sort of one of the earliest to sort of do that in a way. But um, no, the rest of the rest of the property stuff's really actually pretty boring. But there's a theme, though. <laughs> there's a theme that, um, if I'm right, that you seem to be. The uh, among the first to do some various things. Yeah, like at the moment we're we're doing a development down on Wakefield Street behind the hotel, uh, where Common Sense Organics used to be. Oh yes. If you go past there now, you'll find there's only sort of bits of a building with the roof off it. And there we are planning uh, an apartment building, eighty apartments, um, and all of the apartments are like. Um, modules that we're bringing in from China. In other words, the apartments are pre-built to the point of view of being a walk-in finished, basically. We're going to assemble them a little bit like you assemble containers on the deck of a container ship and uh, connect them all up to the services and uh, we'll have an apartment building. So that's the later sort of, if you like, innovator it is, because it's a prefab yeah. sort of approach. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a wander so, by. Yeah. Well, it's um, it, like most uh, new things or most, most sort of groundbreaking things, it's proved to be quite a lot more difficult than it was originally thought. And the whole consent process has been lengthy and the melding of the modules into a Wellington engineering concept particularly considering seismic issues mm-hmm. uh, has been um, quite difficult and and certainly taken quite a lot of time so the project's actually well behind in terms of time but um, we're pretty confident that by the end of this year it'll be substantially on the way congratulations mm. yeah another one yeah, yeah that's really good good all right i promised you i'd well ask just a question around um Local politics. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. So, nine years as a Wellington City Councillor? I was, yes. Uh, thank you. <laughs> right? Um, so, where do you think the city is at today? And what do you think needs to be done in the future? Or is that too big a conversation? Well, not really. I mean, frankly, you get what you deserve, and Wellingtonians are getting what they deserve. If they don't take any interest in local government politics, they can't expect to get any better than they're getting. And if good people won't stand for the city council um, and ordinary citizens won't engage with the city council, then you get city councils that basically are pretty uninspiring. And I think that is what we've got, and I could go into lots of reasons why I think that, 
but it basically comes down to until Wellingtonians actually stand up and say, we're really interested in our city, nothing's going to change. We've come a bit full circle because this comes right back to where you were saying as a student or beyond university, two things. What you expected of yourself was to sort of step up and learn some more and get to a yes around things, grab an opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? That Mm -hmm. seems fair. And that the time in San Francisco mattered. Mm, Sure did. You know, it made a huge difference to... uh, to my whole, I suppose, approach to life, really. It very much augmented that whole glass-half-full approach and that nothing's impossible and that try and be positive and supportive and uh, and have vision, for God's sake. We've got no vision. You know, like it's like, where's the plan? Inspiring leadership, where is it? And I'm sure there are people in our community that could provide inspiration and leadership and make us all feel really good about living in Wellington, but they certainly aren't on the city council. Well, mind with that as a clarion call for Absolutely. for all of Wellingtonians yeah. uh, to step forward. Step up, yeah, step up. So let me talk just a little bit. You mentioned art in the context of having a lot of wall space, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you're quoted in an article last year as saying art is like very good wallpaper that stimulates us <laughs> and so when I I had not read that quote before and uh, I thought I'm not quite sure what it means and my first reaction was to think about our uh, university art collection which we're lucky to have and we're fortunate to have on our walls that we can actually mm, walk through mm, and mm, see mm. and engage with and it's stimulating, it's provocative, all of those things. Um, but I'm not sure everybody thinks about it that way. Sometimes I think they just see them as they walk past and see them almost as whānau or family members that they're just yes. used to or, seeing. Or wallpaper. Or wallpaper. <laughs> so I wanted to... Ask, can you help us with that? What do you mean by art is like wallpaper that stimulates you? Well, I'll probably take you back a bit. You mentioned the university art collection. That was instrumental in my becoming an art collector and has been very, very influential in the sort of art that I collect. And um, funnily enough, when I first came to university, I was at Weir House and the warden at Weir House was Tim Beaglehole. And Tim Beaglehold was basically responsible for assembling the university art collection with the generous help of Peter McCleavy, who was sort of well-known art dealer in town. And so my recollection of the university is lots of McCann's, lots of Ian Scott's, big paintings, some very vibrant colours of that era. And uh, those are the sort of paintings, Smithers, people like that. Those are the sort of paintings that I've tended to drift towards in my collecting. Really, what I regard, I suppose, as first of the modern era. I know, I'm sure art historians wouldn't agree with that terminology, but that's the way I saw it. So all of a sudden, art changed for me from being, you know, sort of landscapes and goldies and that that ilk of painting to something much more vibrant and exciting. And uh, I remember um, in my first or second year at university, I went to 
an exhibition downtown of Brent Wong paintings. And it just blew me away, totally blew me away. And that he had this sort of um, quintessential, almost Wellington landscape in the sense of, you know, sort of, uh, buildings out in, in quite dry paddocks with, with sort of rusty roofs and then these sort of surrealistic um, concrete structures in the sky and I was just thought, I'd just been to see 2001 A Space Odyssey and, you know, I was right into this and, and that for me uh, was really a sort of coming of age in terms of, of art appreciation and so you have the the interest and the passion, of course, but you do have to have somewhere to put it. You do have to be in the right sort of frame of mind and position to actually start collecting art. And um, we've, we've always had, in the various homes that I've had, we've always had a pretty reasonable selection of original art, not expensive stuff, but quite good art. And But it wasn't really until I needed to... Um, have a strategy for the hotel, a business strategy for the hotel, that I really started to take art collecting seriously. And the strategy was that we were never going to be able to compete with the chain hotels in terms of marketing muscle and money. So the only way we were going to be able to distinguish ourselves business-wise was by being different. And the way I thought we could be different has become an art hotel. And there was a stage in the early stages of the internet where we were actually listed as one of the top ten art hotels in the world, believe it or not. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, like if you'd gone on to Google, I have to say Google wasn't in exist then, so this is probably late 90s. Okay, Late All 90s, right. yeah. And so that's where it all started. Not only that, I started to have the resources also to buy art. So when I talk about it as, as interesting wallpaper... I think it kind of is that, and it's sort of like scenery. You know, you're driving past New Zealand scenery, and your general impression of it is it's just beautiful. And every so often something will catch your eye, and you'll actually want to look at that more closely, and it'll leave an impression with you. And in many respects, I see sort of massed art, and it's a little bit the way I go around art galleries, is that... I don't go there to view every painting they have. I go there to see the things that catch my eye. And so it's really a wandering exercise where, you know, stuff's going past you, stuff, and then suddenly something will catch your eye. And I know that when people come into the hotel and they see the art that they, we've got assembled there, I mean, some people come in specifically to look at it and they go around quite carefully but most people just go by it, you know, they're checking in, they're going to their room, they're coming back, they're going to the restaurant, whatever. But I know that there'll be certain pieces for certain people that will catch their eye and they'll, they'll suddenly go, oh, wow, um, you know, that's something. And, and that, I think, is a little bit the wallpaper reference. So it's, it's very good wallpaper, but every so often something catches your eye. Thank you. Does that explain it? It does. It's perfect because when I've been to the hotel, that's exactly my experience. Mm, good. But good. I, don't, I don't think I could have, have articulated it. You've also helped me understand because it's eclectic, the yeah. work. Yeah. And I take it that that's not necessarily by design, 
but it's an outcome of you wandering through as you look at different pieces and thinking about what catches your eye. Exactly. So it's not a studied collection at all. It's not a researched collection at all. It's it's very much a, a sort of instant decision making, having seen a piece you like. And I used to describe it as a very average collection. I didn't mean average in terms of, you know, it's neither good quality nor bad quality, but average in the sense that I've found that most of the things that appeal to me appeal to most other people. And so it seems to appeal to the average person, and that's exactly what I wanted to achieve with the hotel. So having had success and that sort of reaction for some of the earlier paintings that I I purchased, I just kept doing the same thing, and the formula seemed to work. So almost all of the art that I buy is bought on the spur of the moment in the sense that somebody sends me an auction catalogue, I decide pretty much straight away if there's anything in there I want. Um, If I go to a gallery, I can walk into a gallery and instantly see if there's anything that I will buy. And, and, And if there's more than one, the one that I like most, you know, the one that I'm most likely to buy. So, and, and it's always been that way. And I think, um, one of the things that if you work around the collection at the hotel, you, you almost can't help but come to the conclusion this is one person's collection. There are certain aspects to it, you know, you're not going to see anything oddball in there that just doesn't somehow fit. Or, or, or most unlikely to anyway. And I think that's what makes, in my, to my mind, a, a, an interesting collection when it's assembled by one person. I've, one of my favourite visitations in, in New York is the Frick Museum. Mm. You've probably been there. And, and again, that, you know, that is a wonderful collection assembled by one person. And it sort of somehow it reflects that. So I have two quick questions for you, Yeah. just to follow up on that. One, I was going to ask you then, what are some of the contemporary artists whose work you really admire? But I don't think that's the right question, because it sounds like... uh, Depends on the work. Depends on the work. Yeah. Uh, And uh, the second question was, it really depends on the overall aesthetic of it being your collection. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean, I've... I've just bought a painting. We, we two weeks ago we were in Napier, and there's actually quite a good gallery in Napier, retail gallery, and went in there and had a look round and saw this painting and just absolutely loved it. And it's an emerging artist. He's from the Hawkes Bay, um, and we paid quite a lot of money for this painting. It's a surrealist painting, and it's just brilliant. And the the artist of I know nothing about at all other than that he's apparently not a full-time artist and he's only recently started exhibiting, uh, but it just appealed to me instantly. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Asking me about who my favourite artist just doesn't it really... doesn't work that right, way. No. In fact, if you did it, I'd probably say somebody like Salvador Dali. No, but I do see a surrealist sort of <laughs> yeah, bent yeah, through yeah, some of this. Definitely. Right? Yep, yep, yep. Thank you a great deal, Chris, because mm-hmm. it really has been an interesting conversation it's for me. It's been fun doing. It has been fun. I think talking about yourself is something particularly satisfying. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we should all have the opportunity yeah, more yeah, absolutely. often. Everyone should be. It should be therapy, shouldn't it? I mean, why don't psychologists use this? You know, come along to an interview and talk about yourself, you know, uh, all the grand things you've done. You have also made me feel better, though. <laughs> so it's been mutual. Thank nui. you. I Thank really you. appreciate it, Chris. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.